I drank a cup of tea and stopped the war. Hello and welcome. I'm William Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can drop us a line by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. Today, on this 18th day of February for episode number 124, we're going to listen for the Cowboy Beat and see if we can't get to the heart of the legend of the Cowboy Buddha. Dear Jonkle Rose, just one more cowboy. I have just run away with a baby blue-eyed hippie mountain climber from Los Angeles. I know you'll never be able to understand, but if you drink this bottle of whiskey, the hangover in your head will be greater than the pain in your heart. I sold your saddle, rugs, and your antique Winchester for two one-way tickets to Nepal. Please don't try and find us. But then I know you're so insensitive, you don't even know where Nepal is. I still love you, and I hope we can be friends someday, but right now I've got to explore my own destiny. Just remember, I'm a person too, you goddamn arrogant cowpoke bullshitter. I sincerely hope your balls get caught on the barbed wire of life. Love and hugs. P.S. Everything is everything. Good morning. Douglas Bowles here, and today on 42 Minutes, we have the great pleasure of meeting Mr. Gino Skye, author, poet, mystic, and cowboy. Mr. Skye is the creator of the Cowboy Buddha, as devised in his infamous novel, Appaloosa Rising. He has also written a collection of stories near the Postcard Beautiful, seven collections of poetry, and the book Coyote Silk. In the 60s, he edited Wild Dog, a famous literary magazine that underpinned a generational movement and stopped a war. It's an honor to be speaking with him today. Hello and welcome. It's great to meet you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's nice to be here. I'm glad you finally tracked me down. <laughs> well, I'm ashamed to say that I, I didn't know about you until last summer when we were speaking with Richard Grossinger, and he said, oh, you're in Boise. You need to speak to the Boise Beat. Um, <laughs> have you heard that before, and, and what is he talking about? Uh, the Boise Beat? Well, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, by using that, I mean, I guess I was... Uh, could be considered part of the beat uh, poetry movement. Uh, I'm uh, I'm old enough, so I don't, and I have no idea why he would call, do that. But it's it's a I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, you know, the beat beatific. Uh, you know, the you got the rhythm. So yeah. yeah. So that is the voice of the voice of Boise, the voice of Idaho. I've, a lot of my work comes right out of Idaho because of that's where I grew up, and uh, mm. in a geographical sense, in a third-dimensional sense, let's say. <laughs> where exactly in Idaho did you grow up? In, in a town called Pocatello, and it's on the eastern side, and it's it's kind of a it's very different from Boise. It's um, it's an old railroad town, and uh, the settlers, you know, stole all the land from the Native Americans, the Shoshones and the Bannocks that were there. Built a red railroad right on the reservation, they, and the Native Americans still own that land and uh, have some kind of say over what 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 this. This uh, spear that runs right through the center of town is called the railroad, but 
Pocatello's a, a real tough town. Barbed wire, broken glass, glass uh, lots of bars, a little university that's slowly being taken over by uh, by the Mormon Church, and uh, and it's turned out some very very good artists, poets, writers. The Ed Dorn was teaching there at one time, and uh, so that's where I grew up, and uh, and it, I still go there all the time. I I have uh, my license plates on my car from the county that Pocatello's in, so I'm very and I have an Idaho driver's license, although I live in Salt Lake City, so I'm very loyal to that. <clears throat> it's to the landscape that's that's in in Idaho, Idaho, you know, that, that's where all my stories come from. So. What What is that landscape for our listeners oh, who've never uh, been to Idaho? Uh, well, it is, it's a high desert. It's part of, part of the Great Basin on the southern part. And then about a third of the way going north, it starts getting into mountains. And then from from that point on, from, say, you know, from something famous like Ketchum or Sun Valley, then it's just mountains all the way up to the Canadian border. And they have an enormous uh, wilderness area inside inside the middle of Idaho that's, that I've spent a lot of time in. So sort of the Salmon River Corridor cuts through there, and I've actually uh, been involved with five other people in, in canoeing the, almost the entire Salmon River, which is uh, 460 miles from the headwaters to where it empties into the Snake River. So I have a great, a great love, and uh, it's and I've taught climbing. I've been a mountain climber, taught climbing in the Tetons, and in and also in Yosemite, and uh, to uh, inner city kids who've never been out in the, in the mountains and. And uh, I would teach mountain climbing in the morning, or, and or rock climbing, and then at night we'd do storytelling, which was was a great experience because these kids come up from the inner cities. All you know, they're just all they've done is talk in their lives. They've really never done much else, and then <laughs> they and they and then to go out and then scare the living crap out of them and. Uh, <laughs> Make them believe I'm God, then that's I was like, <laughs> that's the way I got their attention. You know, it's like you know, I can kill you, you know, if you want. To. And and I mean, it, here they were doing uh, what they only seen on television, and uh, they were rock climbing and rappelling and 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 living and having great fun, and then we'd do stories, and the stories were wonderful. And so, let me get this right. So you're you're writing poetry and telling stories and studying Buddhism and climbing mountains. Hmm. I wonder why Richard called you a beat. <laughs> uh, well, maybe that uh, you know that's. Well, uh, Gary Snyder was like that. Yeah, know. and Jack Kerouac. Uh, and Jack Kerouac, and and uh, and so that that was. Uh, yeah, that, I'd say that. Uh, That'd be quite an honor to have after my name. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 
and there was a you know that's part of my whole influence with with all those beat writers and uh, and I kind of grew up with them you know with them uh, they're a little older than I am but I kind of followed I followed in that uh, their movement I guess well let's get into that a little bit so in 1963, you're working at a library in Dallas? Mm-hmm. I was there, uh, ended up there, uh, and I wanted to go there and sort of get involved in the, the civil rights movement. And I had this old car and a bag full of peyote, which <laughs> was legal at that time. And you could buy peyote in uh, uh, legally in in Texas, uh, in Laredo, Texas, and the Smith Cacti Ranch in Laredo, Texas. You get a hundred buttons for five dollars, but that's not what. And I already had the bag of peyote, but I and I had a sister in Dallas, and so I, I went to see her and and got a job at the public library, and started meeting some. Uh, black people and got involved in the civil rights movement. And that was, uh, and that was where my heart was. And I, I, uh, and I enjoy, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was painful. It was, uh, Dallas was very mean at that And, and probably still is. Uh, that's where Kennedy was shot. Yeah, was the, I think that same year. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but before that happened, was it your friend at what is now Idaho State University, but was then Idaho State College? Yes. And and you guys started Wild Dogs or Wild? Yes. Uh, no, I I didn't start. I, I, did, I wasn't involved in the start. I was in Texas when that happened. Uh, the poet, the poet Ed Dorn, mm-hmm. Edward Dorn, uh, got a small little job teaching. He, Ed had been in Black Mountain when he's probably with the Black Mountain people, Bob, Bob Creeley and Charles Olson and Robert Duncan, and. Uh, and he he knew this art professor at Idaho State named Ray Obermeyer. And Ray helped Ed Dorn get a teaching job at Idaho State for I think maybe five hundred dollars a quarter or maybe a semester. Mm-hmm. And uh and so Ed moved from Santa Fe to to Pocatello, and while he was there, he uh, he turned, he really kind of changed the whole creative writing program. Well, they didn't have one, but he maybe started a creative writing program of the, uh, what we might call the beat, the beat consciousness of poetry and, and writing. And then, uh, and from 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 there he and so he started uh, putting out this magazine called Wild Dog. Or prior prior to that, I had been in Idaho State, and a friend of mine named Sheldon Newman uh, 
he and I started a political and poetry magazine called a pamphlet. And it was very political and, le- and very left-wing. And, of course, that alerted the FBI, and, and they got on our tail. And I'm probably to say that I have a very beautiful dossier that the FBI has created on me, <laughs> of me. Yeah. And, uh, but that was you know, true of almost anybody. Anybody uh, was doing anything at the time. Is it, uh... Well, I actually heard that, I think at the time Wild Dog was being... Well, what, it might have been pamphlet, but at that time there were two pamphlets, two leftist pamphlets being published in the United States, and one was in Chicago, and one was in Pocatello. Yes, that's true. That was a pamphlet. Uh, that's that's that the pamphlet humorous. We were, yeah, it is. Uh, there are two two left wing publications in in 1963 in all of the United States that were coming out of the colleges and universities. And that was written up by the Monthly Review, which was is the socialist uh, magazine, monthly magazine. And I was I was I was really uh, knocked out about that, that when I heard that that uh, we were right up there at the University of Chicago and then Pocatello, Idaho. But uh, <clears throat> and then the, I think and I left and I went to Europe and then came back and uh, got. And it and ended up in uh, San Francisco. I was living with a black woman. I got fired in San. It was 1963 too. I got fired because of my job because they found out I was living with a black woman. And what what brought you to San Francisco originally? Oh, I've I've always been. You know, that's where all the you know that's where the beats were. <laughs> and, uh, and and where was where was your apartment? Where did you just happen to end up at that time? And I just well we when we uh, when we were doing Wild Dog the magazine Wild Dog we inadvertently moved into the Haight Ashbury the fall the December of 1964. At that time there was Haight was no not what it was today or what we know of the heat Ashbury as today. There were only, uh, Michael McClure, the poet Michael McClure, lived in that area. And as far as I know, that was the only uh, poet writer living in the hate. And as and then as also, as far as I know, we, we were the first incoming artists to move into moving into the hate because of just this location of where it was and the rent was right and it's right next to, next to the panhandle and so my uh, my friend and I were doing the magazine Wild Dog one that was started by Ed Dorn we were witnesses for three years to the whole hate Ashbury flowering the flower power uh, scene and the, the the birth of all those bands that came out of there and uh, the marches on the, mar- the marches that we did in, in Oakland and San Francisco and uh, all over the all over the Bay Area and, uh, well and I, I think I read that you 
babysat Jerry Garcia's kids. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. We uh, we lived in uh, <laughs> uh, his kids. Uh, the, the he had he had well he had his first, uh, his kids with Mountain Girl, and uh, and they they eventually uh, lived in Stinson uh, Stinson Beach, where I ended up living in Stinson Beach, which is just north of San Francisco. And I helped build Jerry Garcia's studio. I built a uh, a bedroom from taken from his long a long garage that he had where he had parked it in an old Bentley and turned it into a uh, bedroom for uh, his daughter, her step his stepdaughter, uh, Sunshine, who was the father was Ken Kesey. And mm. the mother was Mountain Girl, and so and we, my wife and I, just lived down the hill, and their kids and our kids are about the same age, so uh, they played together, and sometimes uh, the Jerry's kids would spend the night with us. And Jerry's gone most of the time; he's always in the San Francisco and and uh, doing music all the time. And, uh, well, speaking of Ken Kesey, I recently, just recently, watched this wonderful movie called Magic Trip about his bus trip. Mm-hmm. Did you have any association with that, or know about it when it was happening, or anything? Oh, I knew about it. Yeah, it was it was very, it was uh, of course very very famous. That uh, I, you know, I never knew Ken Kesey until later on when. He came back to San Francisco from being in Mexico, and I think the cops were after him, and uh, he, he had some warrant out for his arrest. I think they caught him smoking marijuana on top of a building or something with, with Mountain Girl. And then he came back to San Francisco, and uh, and. He, and he, he had his bus there, and they ever did, you know, they did the, the big 1966, the the big BM that they had there, and uh, yeah, he was he was you know, he was always around. He and you know, then you know, Timothy Leary was showed up, and uh, Ram Dass showed up, and uh, well, did you go to any of those? Oh yeah, I was there at those the, at the parties. <laughs> Yeah, what all the parties and uh, the parties and uh, in the park and the parties in the uh, Ashbury, it was uh, it it was just happening all the time. There were I mean there were even I mean parties where where uh, uh, you know, some of the people the the dancers from the New York City ba- ballet would show up at these pot parties etc. Because as the word was out, you know there's in the heat, you know, you can go out and find any drug you want. Is it, uh... and, and so, you know, that leads us to the what the '60s were really about. It was all about sex, <laughs> drugs, and rock and roll. Is that right? And and, and bags of peyote buttons. <laughs> <laughs> and bags of peyote buttons. You know, yeah. I, I think in that in one of my books, I talk about the book about Wild Dog and the Wild Dog days and stuff. And yeah, there were lots of drugs, and there were. Rock and roll, and and but you know it's all came out of the the and was the catalyst was the the, the Vietnam War. 
without the war, that I don't think the Haight-Ashbury would become what it what it be, became. It was there was drugs, and that was, uh, and there was rock and roll, and there was marches and protests, and there was, you know, people dressed up in costumes because they couldn't find their own, own identity in the in the clothing that that they came out of, you know, the J.C. Penney look, you know, but uh, uh, they had to create the, their own ad- identity. And that was the beauty of, to say, the Haight-Ashbury that so many, so many people did try and create their own, <clears throat> their own identity, you know, to find out who they are and to explore other, other cultures. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, clothing from Afghanistan, clothing from Tibet and, uh, were being worn and, uh, you know, clothing from, you know, handmade clothing. There's a wonderful book called Native Funk and Flash that was done by a a woman from Idaho, but she was living in that Bay Area at the time. And if uh, anybody can find it, you have to find it online. But it is a, a book of handmade art clothing that came out of the, out of San Francisco and Marin County, which is just north of there, but uh, incredible uh, embroidery, you know, co- uh, beautiful c- costumes, and and that's sort of like where the evolution of where that period of the hate came from. There was just so much creativity in in the, that whole movement that I had to flower out into, you know into your outside costume. And, uh, you know, and, and health food, uh, no one no one really knows about, you know, the the birth of, as we know, the health food stores uh, came right out of the Haight-Ashbury. There's, uh, I was in a, in a woman's apartment when the, the, as we know, the granola was were the first was created in this woman's oven, and uh, because you couldn't get good grains and whole foods, it was all Wonder Bread, and you'd have to, in order to get good grains, you'd have to go to the feed lot stores and buy whole grains. For the and, the, <laughs> the animal what, food. Yeah, the animal food. Oh, right. Exactly. Right. And and that was where the whole grains were because they were processing everything else. And so this woman uh, went out to the street store in South San Francisco and bought and bought a whole bunch of bags of grains and and started making what she called granola. It's uh, it's not the first time that name was used. I mean, one of the big cereal companies used it in the 20s or 30s and then dropped it. From what I've read, but uh, she called these these big hard chewy bars granola, and that's or, or cereal, and uh, that's where that came from. And and they're just exploring in every avenue, you know, uh, all kinds of variations of of sex, which was that was a that was a lot of fun, you know. Just, uh, <laughs> And how, you know, and then how to blow people's minds. The only weapons they had to try, you know, start to stop the war. So it was a peaceful movement. So all they had is what they could do with their own, their own bodies, and and uh, 
that that was that was it. I was just being so anti-establishment and had to in order to show that, and that was what the uniform was. The, you know the colorful clothing, you know the capes and the beautiful rainbow clothing and, and handmade shoes and boots and. You have a quote in Wild Dog Days that uh, from Nixon that says, "In 1972, I wanted to drop an A bomb on Hanoi, but I feared the people in those streets." Yes. And you say that was us. We did that. Yeah. Peace, we peace did medals that. for every dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd say that you know that. At one time, I mean, after, before I read that quote, I or read that in the book in Nixon's biography. I was, I, I just questioned whether we'd done any good. That uh, all those those years of of and how and what it ended up with, you know, the heat Ashbury being kind of torn apart and becoming sort of like a a war zone. After after it was over, and and you know people would say, "Gosh, hey, look at you know what the hippies did. This place looks like shit." You know, that the, <laughs> and and uh, but then I read that uh, in Nixon's biography and and autobiography, and 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 said, "Yes, you know, we did that. You know, we we stopped we stopped Nixon from dropping a hydrogen bomb on Hanoi." Because they were afraid, they were afraid of the people in the streets, and, uh, and that's that's you think about it, that is a quite incredible, incredible accomplishment uh, for a group of people to do that, you know. To, uh, and you know, it's sort of like the the black movement, you know, it's what they, you know, they, we, all of us, you know, were involved in that, were, were able to to accomplish, you know. To, Martin Luther King and uh, yeah. so so uh, yeah. as the Beatles said, it's it's getting better all the time. Are you optimistic about the way things are now? Uh, I'm always optimistic. Uh, yeah, yeah. I because uh, we still have wars and things. We that still nature. have wars, but we have the we have the consciousness of what we created say in the 60s and the 70s and 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 the you know the uh the sense of martin luther king that will never go away or or say malcolm x uh, or what what the so-called hippies accomplished it's it's always there it's not going to go away and and uh it's it's why why the FBI still keeps an eye on us? Because they they want to you know they want to uh, know what's going on. I did a, uh, a reading here in in Salt Lake City uh, in 2003 when when <clears throat> Bush started the war in I- Iraq, and it was uh, called a night of Bush bashing. And my my friend of mine, my my friend who brought uh, Ed Dorn to Pocatello to teach, Ray Obermeyer, who who's an artist and a poet, came to Salt Lake, and we read together. And he's an old wobbly, he's an old socialist from way back. And FBI's had had a, a couple of 
triple dossiers on him and, and a couple of dosexies to sit back and say, why, this guy's really, really, really doing something. But after this reading, uh, and we did, we gave, you know, Bush a whole, you know, raft of shit. And, and sit and right in front of us there, there are two, two these two very very straight women. Oh, just amazing, you know. This is, they look like they, you know, came right out of, you know, the supermarket clothing store, you know, the suits, power suits, and all that. And they're sitting right, right in uh, behind my my wife, and and so at the start of the reading, I said, well, I would like to invite the FBI. You know, I'm happy. I hope the FBI's here, and I would because they're doing their job and I'm doing my job and and uh even if you want to come up and say something that's fine, you know, that the <laughs> and these these women started turning really red, you know. And but the next the next morning I was looking out my window, my face at the street and this black this black suburban with black windows pulled up, a window came down. A camera came out of the out of the one window, the passenger side window, and a photograph was taken. And then the window went up, and it drove away. So, and that was about 2003. So, you you know that they're keeping track. You know they're keeping keeping track. You know. If we're going to talk about radicals we can talk about the uh the loaves of pumpernickel among on the wheat bread shelf and and your friend rosie sorrell's rosalie sorrell rosalie yes. excuse me yeah. yeah and uh who is she and and how did you get yeah. to know her and rosalie was uh, is a folk singer and that uh she she now lives in boise idaho that's where she grew up she was in the 60s when i came here to Salt Lake City in 1962. I was in and out of here between San Francisco, uh, Dallas, and uh, other Europe, and, and I'd always sort of it, Salt Lake City sort of became my, my home for a while, and. Uh, and I could always get a job at a public library because they paid paid a dollar twenty five an hour, and and I happened to know a lot about books, and they liked that, you know, but they didn't want to pay you any money, which is which was that's the reason it was such a good good job. And anyway, I could go anywhere and get a job <laughs> at a public library, and uh, and when I moved here and I kept I got a job at the public library. I was actually their music librarian because I knew a lot about recorded music. And uh, so that was my job, and I started hearing stories about this folk singer called Rosie Sorrells, and who was a, a, a good friend of Pete Seeger's and Ramblin' Jack Elliott's. And I I kept telling, asking people around as well, does anyone know Rosalie? And uh, and uh, there was a woman who who worked in where I worked, and her name was uh, Martha Stewart. And you know, not not the Martha Stewart, but <laughs> Martha Stewart. And, and I thanks and she, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. <clears throat> and uh, 
So I was asking her, and she said, well, I, I live two, two houses away from Rosalie Sorrells. And I said, do you do? And I said, God, great. You know, I want to meet her. And she said, well, you don't want to meet Rosalie Sorrells. And I said, well, why not? And she said, well, she's really wild. And I said, oh, God, that's great. I really want to. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she said, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, Vert, last night, just last night at 2 in the morning, she was chasing her husband down the street with a butcher knife. <laughs> and I said, well, that's, you know, that's okay. You know, you probably deserved it, the asshole, you know. And... <laughs> And he, she said, but but she was stark naked. <laughs> and then I said, I really got it. <laughs> well, she has about 25 uh, albums out, uh, vinyl to tape to a CD. She's been recently nominated twice for Grammys. The year, two or three years ago, Pete Seeger won, and she was one of the One's for you know it's for the the classification of traditional folk music is what that class is, and then the next year she she was nominated again, but didn't win. Uh, she was at Woodstock, she was at the big Isle of Wight concert, and she's just been a big influence on my life. I'm a very very I'd say major influence on my life. If if you're a, a Boise Beat, she is also Boise Beat. If if she's bringing Pete Seeger to Boise, and then you have that surveillance apparatus saying, "Oh my gosh, what is what is happening to our nice little conservative state? We've got radicals coming in." Yes, yeah, well, oh, it was it was here in Salt Lake. It was it was uh, uh, it was it was wonderful. That's a and and uh, there was an also another uh, person named Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, a folk singer. And he was an Owabli and a uh, socialist. And he's also uh, has a bunch of recordings out. And a lot of a lot of his songs have been have been covered by very famous people. So he was here, and Rosalie was here, and <clears throat> I was here doing the magazine Wild Dog and uh, and that's what I and we were just doing all kinds of great things and putting music and poetry readings and uh, putting out the magazine Wild Dog which was in Salt Lake City if you can imagine I mean it was it was very radical and uh, and, so, that, so, you know, and we were having people like Leroy Jones write for it, and, and uh, you know, <clears throat> Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and wow. Buckminster Fuller, uh, you know, all those like beats, all the so-called beat poetry. And uh, Richard Brodigan uh, was was in it, and. Uh, and and we were doing that, and I called. Uh, one time, I described our little group of people. Uh, the the single loaf of pumpernickel on the endless wonder wonder bread shelf of Salt Lake City, because you know, mm-hmm. we we were the only ones who were doing anything, and nothing was happening up at the university. 
that was the most conservative place I've ever been in my life, and <laughs> and they didn't they they feared any new new voices or new people coming coming into to uh, their town because they they just wanted to keep it comfortable and uh, it wasn't like any other art big art city where you want to change and you know push everything back and uh, but I did here in Salt Lake City in 1962 and three live with a black woman and uh, I I must say that we were treated better here as a mixed couple in Salt Lake City than we ever did. We moved us to to San Francisco, and it took us three three uh, three months to find a place to live. And the blacks didn't want us. The whites didn't want us. The Chinese wouldn't even answer the door when we came up to the door. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, and that surprised me. You'd think it'd be different, but San Francisco, you know, is a very, you know, it's a beautiful town, and that's what they wanted to protect. They didn't want anything other changes, and uh, and eventually I got fired from my job, and and I told you that when, in San Francisco because of this black woman. They found out that we were living together, and they, I, I had a job in a in a hospital. And they, they fired me to, for having this living with this black woman. She did, said, "See, now you know what it's like, you know, motherfucker." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to switch She's... gears a little bit, we have to ask you another question because we're almost about ready to wind down. But this question is: So, who is the cowboy Buddha? Oh, that's a good question. Yes. Oh, well, uh, the the cowboy Buddha. I'm the cowboy Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in in Appaloosa Rising, the cowboy Buddha never really comes out and uh, he's not as a character. He's inside all of the main characters. And, uh, but everything I've done since then, I mean, it's all been with this sense of the cowboy booty in mind, you know. And I live at what is called the cowboy, my wife and I live at what's called the cowboy booty hotel. So I guess if I, if there's a hotel here, I guess that's the, I'm the cowboy booty. Now, it, the, the name's been stolen a bunch of times. Uh, uh, and also Gino Sky, there's, look it up and there's, yeah, there's a Geno Sky band in New York City, I understand. Uh, and uh, they've made a, a, a mar- kind of a, like a margarita drink called the Cowboy Buddha in Taos, New Mexico, at the old Taos Inn. And I confronted him one time about that. And, you know, I said, that's a copyrighted name, you know, that's like that. And I said, where did you get the name? And, and this waitress said, oh, this our bar manager read some strange book and I said, well, I wrote that book, you know, and she, then she got all, you know, fluttered and flustered and stuff like that, which is not what I really wanted to, wanted to do, you know, like, uh, but, uh, so the cowboy boot is still here. I'm still working on it on other books. And, uh, I'm, uh, Still got a lot to say. I'm in great health, 
and got a lot to write about, and I'm also doing some illustrations of my work now. Well, I know North North Atlantic Books put out an illustrated version of Appaloosa Rising. Did you do those illustrations then? No, no. A friend of mine in, in Bolinas, California, did those. They did an illustrated Appaloosa Rising and an illustrated Coyote Silk, which is my second novel, which is the kind of a continuation of Appaloosa Rising, except it's a, it takes it a different uh, a different time. It's a it's a hypothetical period of time when women get so fed up with men and all their wars and their masculinity and and their fighting that they they st- they start fighting the men and uh, it's that's what Coyote Silk's about. And, uh, Do you have anything else up your sleeve? I have a I have a novel that takes place in Idaho. It's about the I I just I finished it just a little while ago. It's um, <clears throat> called the New Buffalo Air Force. Uh, just a bunch a name for some people who environmentalists, but they're out trying to uh, stop the killing of uh, bears in Idaho and all over the world actually. Uh, and the bears are used in the parts that pause their gallbladders and their penis. Their penises are used as aphrodisiacs. I started that book a long time ago, but and then when Viagra came out, I thought, well, there's never going to be a need now for it to have uh, aphrodisiacs may come from you know animal parts. And that, uh, and then maybe five years ago, I learned, found out that that the uh, the Chinese men and the North Cor- or South Korean men, that's the only countries I could attribute it to that they still want the old bear parts, and so there's all this uh, poaching of bears all over the world, just for their bear paws and penis and gallbladder and. Uh, in Peking, uh, Beijing, uh, a bowl of bear paw soup cost two thousand dollars, and so that's what uh, the book that I just finished is is about, and, uh, and it's sort of like a a, a nouveau western uh, cowboy Buddha consciousness of of the you know. And it has to deal with the national health insurance and uh, all kinds of things like that. But, but at that, and then I'm working on a book called The Prodigy and uh, uh, High Confessions of a, an Ass Bandit. <laughs> Greatest title ever. Yeah, and uh, the main character is named Fucker James. <laughs> and he grew, he grew up... Uh, and so I, you know, he goes to school. I mean, just a, you know, an episode. He goes to school, and his parents are professors at a university, but they kind of came out of Berkeley and hippies from the, you know, the so-called intellectual hippies from Berkeley. And they named their son Fucker, you know, because they were involved <laughs> in the Sexual Freedom League and uh, at the time, and they just thought that was a great name for some, you know, their 
son so to have and so he's in school you know he's in the grade school and teacher you know calls roll and says you know sally you know david you know molly you know fucker here you know this and it's just you know it's just a passe you know it doesn't you know really and i mean that's the sort of the irony of it all you know said that that's just you know again it was just a just a name a word but it it carries so much power, you know, in in our language. You know, that uh, so I'm I'm working on an ad. There's going to be a three book series, and and I'm I finished one book. I'm just going to start trying to find a, find a a publisher, which might be very difficult. But uh, well, you know, we you know. we hope you have luck because all that sounds fabulous. But that was 42 yeah. minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Okay, well, I appreciate it. I and. I hope you have something good there. You've been listening to Gino Sky on ThinkBook Radio. This is a production of thethinkbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Sky can be found at, um, well, we recommend you reading his work. For more information about the ThinkBook, our guests, uh, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we thank you in advance. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. Thank you, and welcome to the world, Jasper Valentine. It's a long way from Salt Lake to Denver Bum in the DNRG The moonlight falls on the water it lights up the rocks and the trees You follow the white Colorado Till it narrows down into the stream Train whistle sings a slow lullaby You're riding along in a dream Rock me to sleep on your bosom Hold me close to your breast Don't leave me alone on the cold city streets Come on and find me a track headed well I'm sick of singing for nickels and dimes When the times are always so lean It's a long way from no place to somewhere Bumming those good years away Tonight I'm feeling so lonesome and cold Maybe i find it someday Rock me to sleep on your bosom Hold me close to your breast Don't leave me alone on the cold city streets Come on and find me a track headed west
long way from no place to somewhere Bumming all the good years away Tonight I'm feeling so lonesome and cold Maybe I find it someday Someday 